we need to stop apologizing for the fact we're delivering online and actually start talking about it in a really positive sense and make this the best experience possible for the people that are engaged in the sessions. Welcome to episode five of season three of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we're sharing our conversation from mid-April with Rob Young, who is CEO of Switch the Play Foundation, the UK's only charity dedicated to supporting all sports people to successfully transition into life outside of sport. Delving into sport again, Zoe, we've discussed whether we should be working on a baking-focused podcast, but perhaps we ought to develop a sports-based one too. Yes, absolutely. I think I might be the wrong person for that, as we've established in previous episodes, but thanks for thinking of me. (laughs) Before we introduce our interview with Rob, actually, before we even delve into that, I think uh, we've both had our COVID jabs this week in the last few days. It might be worth just, how, how are you on that, Zoe? It was fine, actually. I did feel a bit fluey the day after, but there's nothing that a bit of paracetamol couldn't help with. And yeah, I was fine within a few days. So if you get offered a jab, I recommend go out there, do it. It's absolutely fine. And you will feel really good once you get in there and you see all those amazing volunteers who are part of this fantastic national effort. Yeah, they were fantastic. I think the fact that the the nurses doing the jabs must have answered the same questions over and over and over again. And and when I sat down in front of them, they answered my questions like it was the first time I thought it was fantastic. On the Tuesday night, I had severe shivers and shakes and all sorts of different things. And I was a bit ropey the next day. But then on the Thursday, as I was share, we were sharing on social media, I was out doing one of my fastest 5Ks of the year. So go out and do it because the impact is, you know, it turns you into a superhuman. Before we introduce our interview with Rob then, let's delve into a bit of the tech news from the week. Zoe, what's caught your eye? So what caught my eye this week is uh, someone shared this really interesting article with me about the impact of Zoom fatigue on various groups. Now, we've talked a lot about video call overload uh, and the joys and uh, sorrows of of remote working on this podcast over the the last year. Um, I think we're both very much pro remote working, but obviously digital well-being clearly needs to be a real area of priority for for all organisations right now. And this is a really interesting article that I saw in Tech Monitor, which was about the impact of Zoom fatigue on women. Uh, And that wasn't an issue which I'd actually come across before which I thought was fascinating and we'll share the link to this in the show notes. So basically what this says is that almost three times as many women report being extremely fatigued by video conferencing and that some of the thinking the reason behind this apparently is that women tend to have more punishing video call schedules uh, with calls that take longer um, less average break times between meetings and some of the obviously big effects of burnout and overload that actually come with that now I think this is articles are really tantalizing glimpse into uh, this pattern but doesn't answer all the questions about why that might be like why 
are women having longer calls? Why do they have have, have less breaks? Uh, and, and we don't yet know why that is. Maybe there'll be future studies where we'll find out more about that. I thought this was really interesting and again raises the point about how we need to make sure that remote work is inclusive for everyone and that we're just giving people space at the moment to take a break. It's much, much needed. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. And uh, one of the articles that I thought that we could talk about sort of dovetails nicely with that, which was the um, an article that was on the BBC. But again, that dovetails with something else I was listening to the other day, listening to the Komodo Mayo film podcast. At this point, you should say hello to Jason Isaacs. So we can just find out how many Wittertainment followers we've got listening to this podcast. But it was when they were away and they were talking, the presenters were talking about Kate Blanchett's new film, Apples, which apparently is about a worldwide pandemic. Um, so that'll be fun. But this pandemic um, causes sudden amnesia. And they were talking about screen time and perhaps you know, how we're at some point, some sort of breaking point with our reliance on screens. And yeah, both you and I being fairly pro working from home I, I think the, the the difficulty is sometimes just stepping away and finding those ways to do that and I think as leaders you know we we are after all podcasting about about leadership and, and digital and there was an article on the BBC that um, I think is worth pointing out that backs all this up which was about sort of taking breaks from from screens and again we'll put a link into the um, into the show notes but there was a quote from a guy called Nick Hederman who's the modern work lead at Microsoft and he'd sort of talked about leaders creating a positive remote culture which I thought was an interesting phrase which is quite difficult when you when you're you know not in the same room as, as your employees but how they could do that by shortening meetings to 20 and 40 minutes rather than half an hour and, and an hour and I think we've talked about that before it's something that I always try to do conducting team check-ins that aren't related to work and also something that I'm absolutely keen on and try and do as much as I can scheduling voice only walking meetings so you're out and about and you're on your phone rather than wedded to a, a screen. And, and not only does that get you out and about on a change of scenery, but it also, I think, opens up your, your brain. It opens up your mind and you think differently and you might have a different conversation if you do sort of get out and, and, and move away from the screen. And the other thing that was in there that I thought was interesting was there was a section on um, being active at the desk and I have a standing desk and I think rather than just Zoom fatigue, a standing desk leaves you at the end of the day with actual fatigue as well, which is quite good because you're on your feet all day, but it's uh, well worth having a look at that. And the other thing I just thought would be interesting is over the weekend, uh, we talked uh, in the last episode about the, the European Super League and how that was affecting football. And this time football again, but the the footballers and football clubs and uh, sports presenters and all sorts of different organisations who went on the football boycott of, of social media. I think that was was managed incredibly well. Everyone sort of blacked out over the course of Friday afternoon all the way through to Monday. This was interesting because as somebody, and you, you and I both work uh, with clients on social media projects, and obviously... I'd like to take a stand on myself uh, by by saying that standing up to, to racism and on online abuse and, and and all the sorts of things that are happening on these channels. And I think it's interesting looking at parts of the world or parts of the 
industries where they can afford, I think, to take more time off of these screens. But I think we both have sort of our socioeconomic future is based on our ability to be on, on, on social media. But anyway, there was an article in Wired this week about the future of social media being about sharing less, not more. The subheading was we may never leave social media completely, but we can control what aspects of our identities we share and with whom. And I think it's interesting because we're starting to become more conscious of what we share, when, with whom, and developing a more curated view of our lives and our work and, and how we can stay authentic to ourselves at the same time. So yeah, I don't know what you think about that, Zoe, and better curating your online profile. I think we're all at a point where we are making probably more deliberate choices about what we're choosing to share and not share online, partly because the environment has has changed so much. And I know that a lot of people are worried about things like cancel culture and saying the wrong thing. And people have become quite self-censoring in, in, in many ways. Uh, and then equally, it feels like there's perhaps not enough censorship in, in other areas. So we're recording this on the day that the Facebook Oversight Board have announced that they've given Donald Trump a, what I would call a stay of execution. They've said that uh, the ban's going to remain in place for the time being, but I think it's going to be reviewed in six months, if I've got that right. Uh, and that seems pretty absurd to me given the the scale of what he's done so I think that it feels like there's some you know there's some massive massive inconsistencies in the culture on social media platforms at the moment there are people who are trying to put a lot of rules around themselves uh, and then there are some people who are still relatively unfettered and where there isn't enough a- accountability. I think leaving the door open for Trump like that sends out some, some very worrying signals to other world leaders who may be doing lots of unethical things. You know, I think for a few days, people thought, because there was this announcement, was it yesterday, where they said that this new communications platform was being launched by Trump and everyone assumed that he was launching his own social network. And I just thought, I looked at I looked at some of the stuff that he's been putting on this platform, which is essentially a sort of it's a website, isn't it, with his thoughts. And he just keeps going on there and updating little blog posts and sharing them out to the world. These channels, it's amazing to me that even sort of what are we now sort of 15 years coming up to 15 years into this sort of social media journey that we're all on, that that we still just don't have a clue how to use them. And 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 it keeps coming round and round again. We we sort of uh, approach it in one way, we approach it in a different way. But the the maturity of these platforms and the maturity of the users on them, uh, it's a discussion. I just think that's that's never going to go away, um, which is good because it probably keeps you and me in in business for a little bit longer. Now for our conversation with Rob Young of Switch the Play Foundation. We spoke to Rob in mid-April and had a fascinating discussion, not only about the impact of the pandemic and a switch to digital delivery, but also about the impact of the pandemic on sports people and how the foundation works to help athletes transition to a world beyond sport. So we would like to welcome Rob Young to the podcast today. Rob co-founded Switcher Play, having seen both the positive and negative sides of transition in sport and deciding that there was a need to support the industry in helping to ensure that transition, whenever it occurs, could be a stepping stone to achieving other great things in life. Rob's experience across a range of roles in sport includes Olympic, Paralympic and Commonwealth Games, work with the national governing bodies of sport, professional sport, national and local government and further and higher education. 
For six years, Rob worked on the London 2012 Olympic Games and Paralympic Games, for which he was awarded an MBE in 2013. Rob became CEO of Switch the Play in February 2021, and he joins us today. Welcome, Rob. Hello. Thank you very much. So we're going to have a general conversation, but the first thing first, tell us about the Switch the Play the Foundation. How did you start? What's your mission and what's your role as CEO? Great. Well, thank you. Um, I think it's one of those interesting things where you want to be able to say that there was this grand plan and vision that we had at the outset. I think it started from four individuals that had connections from our days as students at Loughborough University and some of our experiences there around sport. And through different roles that we'd been in in sport, we had informally been helping people who had faced challenges in their exit from sport. And I think we came together and recognised and thought, actually, that is there an opportunity to do more? Could we do better? Can we play a role in this? And, and from those conversations, we went, well, let's try and do something. And that sort of really was the or- origins of where Switch the Play came up with from, from an idea and an aspiration to help people. And then gradually, bit by bit, we connected to other people that brought different skills, knowledge to the conversation. And what we recognised from starting out with a conversation about the challenges faced by young people, particularly leaving a sport like football, when you actually looked at it, that transition was just as difficult if you have been an established professional or high level athlete over a full career. Actually, the issues and challenges were the same. Sometimes where the decimal point in the salary might be different was, but actually there was so much commonality around some of the, the challenges that people were facing. And, and really, that's where we felt that we wanted to try and help people to not just avoid those negative challenges, but actually to be able to thrive in whatever they chose to do next. In terms of our mission, so we are the only charity in the country that focuses on supporting all sports people, any stage in their career, to successfully transition to life outside of sport. I say outside deliberately rather than after, because actually much of what we talk about is actually things that people can do while still competing. It's not about just simply about retirement. It's about how you develop yourself as a person. We do that through providing uh, personal development support, career support, well-being support for individuals and really trying to help them, empower them to find out where their skills are, what they're passionate about and help them to find the path of what they want to do next. And what about specifically your role as CEO? Yes. So uh, I recently took over in February of this year. As a co-founder, it's an interesting lesson around why even Switch to Play exists in the first place. So I had my own sports consultancy business which was actually the reason why I think in many respects Switch the Play exists because I was my own boss. And so I could throw some time into this passion project that ultimately eventually became a charity. Our former chief executive, Leon Lloyd, uh, who's still involved in our work, who's a former Leicester Tigers and England international, moving on into some other areas of business and development. And the opportunity came up where the trustees said, would I be interested? And as somebody who probably many people would say hasn't had a proper job for eight years, It was an interesting conversation I hadn't thought about. And it's a real privilege to be able to lead the charity. It's not something I necessarily envisaged myself being somebody who started up businesses and entered into these roles. But I'm really excited about what the opportunity is and what we and the difference we're trying to make. Our podcast has largely been focused on this idea of leadership and what what leadership is needed to um, or what what leadership looks like in the digital age I guess but the impact of the pandemic is also something that we we've come up with uh, time and time again in these conversations it's been felt right across the world of sport everything from park run to euro 2020 has been cancelled or postponed so how has the pandemic affected your operations and also how does it affect the sports people that uh, switch the players working with day in day out so firstly, on the operations, I guess there's probably two sides to it. One is 
clearly the challenges that we faced. So we converted to a charity in February 2020, so six weeks before the pandemic hits, which perhaps not the ideal time in many respects, because we're trying to transition from a business model that was around social enterprise to being one that was exclusively around charity. And there were a number of events, which was one of the low-hanging fruit for us about events where we were the name beneficiary of that were getting cancelled. So you start to identify income where you're being prudent. And then all of these events start throughout the year, kept getting cancelled, kept getting cancelled, which means that we were constantly having to adjust our business plan. In terms of accessing new funding streams, that was really difficult. And you know, lots of charities would have faced similar challenges. But unless you were an established grant funded organization of certain organizations, you weren't going to be coming in as a new organization to be able to access support. And a lot of organizations pivoted to supporting frontline services around the pandemic, which is completely understandable. So that was a difficult space to be in from some financial standpoint. Operationally, though, it was interesting because we had all of our delivery, which was face to face, cancelled overnight. So we had to make that adjustment. But the the other side of the, the coin around, well, what was the situation like for sports people? Well, Arguably, they would never needed our services more than over the last 12 months because of the level of uncertainty about contracts being renewed, future career, cancellation of Olympic, Paralympic Games, etc. that were all creating a pressure point. And there's lots of evidence about what the mental health challenges for sports people have been during the pandemic and the concerns and uncertainty. So we needed to make sure that we were actually fulfilling our charitable purpose and delivering services. And the way that we did that is... We took the jump earlier than we ever planned to do and we were perhaps overcomplicating what it might look like, but we needed to deliver our services online. So all of our masterclasses, we then had to think about how we would develop and deliver them in a meaningful and engaging way in an online format. We were offering lots of stuff out for free. We were also able to engage sports people in a different way because some of them had more time. So there was a, a willingness for them to look and maybe look at some of these services that hadn't been previously. But you also had the opportunity where you could deliver to a geography whereby it isn't about putting people in a room, but actually you could deliver to sports people anywhere in the country, which far opened up the opportunity in terms of the people that we can engage with. So in terms of what we actually managed to do last year, we reached just around 1,100 beneficiaries, which is more than we've done before. So I'm incredibly proud of the team's efforts in being able to achieve that through the challenges that were faced for the charity over that period of time. That's a huge achievement. And digital service delivery is something that we talk about a a lot on the podcast and is also a question that we get asked about a lot as part of our day jobs. And of course, the big question is always, how did you do it? How did you pivot? So can you tell us a bit more about the, the, the process you went through and some of your learnings? Yeah, I think there's a bit about being comfortable with the platform that you're using and understanding the platform and what the platform can and can't do. So if you're looking at platforms like Zoom, it's like these concepts that people are familiar with now, like breakout rooms and how do you create interaction with people? You know, when you started out at first, like just some of the etiquette around using this was because it was new for everybody. So you're learning that at the same time as thinking about how you deliver. So we pride ourselves around delivering really interactive sessions, particularly with sports people that you know, they could be quite apprehensive about coming into some of the sorts of sessions that we might run. And you want to make it engaging. You want to make it fun. And the reality of that is that's a, that's a very different challenge when you're doing it in an online forum, especially when you're then mixing up groups of people that may not know each other. So there is that personal comfort. So we try different things. So our operations manager sort of oversees what we describe as our minimum operating standards. So we have those standards of what we try and do for our face-to-face delivery. And we have to write those same standards 
for what we do with our online delivery. And what we then do is, as a team of deliverers, is share the little tactics that people would use that worked well to work with different groups. And we try and share, well, actually, if we're dealing with an under-16 group, this worked really well. Well, a different tactic might work better with a different group. And trying to constantly review, check and challenge ourselves to get to a point where, as one of our associates said, we need to stop apologising for the fact we're delivering online and actually start talking about it in a really positive sense and make this the best experience possible for the people that are engaged in the sessions. I love that idea of uh, sharing tactics. Really brilliant because I think there's centralised learning is a big challenge for a lot of the organisations that we've spoken to because so many things have been happening at pace with digital service delivery it's quite easy for things to become siloed so I love that you've got this this way of sharing that and do you think that's almost a, a kind of sports type mindset that you've brought across there that way that sharing of tactics and looking at where things can be transferred and relevant for different situations it's a great question. And I, I lean to sort of my thinking when you say that is of Leon. And Leon is, as an individual I know, is like somebody who's competed at the highest level in his sport. I've never seen anyone so willing to embrace feedback as him. And it's all from his sporting environment. I don't get better unless someone gives me feedback. And I, I'm constantly striving to be better. So he actively searches for feedback and he's happy for it to be honest, blunt, constructive, but like being that hoover of the feedback, because then actually that's how you can then learn and get better. So it's something that I guess is really embedded in the culture of what we do is we really do ask, we do really do challenge ourselves to think, how could it be better? So we have a team code and, and on our team code, we have a one of our sort of little areas we talk about is around being positively dissatisfied so we have the feedback one but we also have positively dissatisfied so like that always striving to be a little bit better so there's probably a little bit about the sporty mentality that runs runs in that and it's getting that balance right that you don't don't miss the celebration of success at the same time but yeah definitely i think learning and feedback is the only way to actually improve ultimately absolutely yeah that's a very digital mindset and as a company that probably wouldn't say that we were particularly digital savvy, that's quite a nice thing to hear. We well, often find that, that where, where, you know, you, you go into an organisation who wants to make change. Uh, you know, when, when you talk about digital transformation, for example, it's often about getting from present state to this massively future state that's quite scary, where, you know, it's all AI and robots and things like that. But actually, when you sit down and look at the processes that you're already running or the natural way that you have of working, you can show that there are incremental steps and stepping stones to get to that point. So it's just lovely to hear it in action. Um, the big question is, cameras on or cameras off on zoom it's interesting because some of the organizations you work with have etiquette that they want to put on i think what we try to do is cameras on because you're seeing people in the room that's certainly how we try to do the sessions some organizations don't follow that principle so you almost have to fit within what they do but it's difficult to get the interaction with people isn't it it's so difficult and I actually um, like to throw in a, a personal story of my son and his uh, work during the second lockdown. And I walked into his room at one point. And I can't remember what lesson it was, but I've got a feeling it was something like science. And I just heard the teacher at the beginning of the session literally pleading with the class that please put your cameras on. I have no idea whether you're listening or engaging or anything. And it's really hard to hard to tell. So yeah, cameras on all the way for, for me at least. You must speak to, to sports people on a literally a daily basis. So what are you hearing from them about the major challenges they're facing at this time as well we've you know we discussed on our previous conversation we discussed how that might be different for example for a premier league footballer versus a you know a, an athlete who is doing their sport part-time 
Yeah, and I think so. For some of the sport that has continued throughout the pandemic, you've got a challenge around, I guess, life in the bubble because people have been very much in this bubble, being tested regularly, very restricted about who they can engage with and the interaction around it. And people might look at it, well, aren't you lucky because you can still do your job? I think we sometimes ignore what that might mean in terms of being able to have contact with family and friends, because actually that social connection is something that we've all strive for. But actually, that's been really strict throughout the whole pandemic of those people in those positions. For a lot of professional sports people, there has been huge uncertainty about contracts being renewed. The financial uncertainty that exists around clubs and and their survival through this process. And, you know, it feels a lot safer now in terms of where we're talking about it. But there were some quite serious conversations about clubs being really at threat of their existence and what that means then in terms of all the players and their contracts. So there's a huge uncertainty there for people. When you take it to Olympic and Paralympic world, and perhaps one of the biggest things you've got is the postponement of Tokyo 2020. And to be fair, it's still not 100% that is going ahead. And you've got people that have trained their entire life to peak for that moment. And suddenly the date gets moved 12 months or maybe not at all. And for some people, that's 12 months too far. If you think about female athletes we've seen who talked about that is in terms of maybe planning to have families and things like that. You know, huge implications on people's lives that people perhaps don't consider that whilst, yes, you're incredibly fortunate to be representing your country, to potentially have the rug pulled on your dream and something that you have literally given your body and soul for, not for financial reward, that's a tough thing to take. And then at the other end of the spectrum, some of the sort of smaller and we're more defined as semi-professional sports, a number of the sports people are what you'd call dual career. So we know of people, say, in netball, Super League, there'll be a number of players in that that have a day job. So how they're trying to combine a day job whilst the protocols and all of the bubbles and COVID secure environments that need to be in place for the sporting side of things. And some of these doctors and teachers, that's a really, really difficult thing to juggle. So it is different depending on where you're at in the sporting thing. And, and, and I say that acknowledging completely that whatever sector you are in, people have had challenges. I think it's just recognising that sports people are no different in that respect in terms of the fact that it has certainly not been an easy time. I'm a season ticket holder for a Premier League club and, and a lot of the discussion around that at the moment, I think getting towards the end of the season is about, it's, it's starting to turn towards that idea that sports people are humans too. And particularly the Premier League and the, the top leagues across the world have been asked to step up and continue pretty much as normal. In fact, in most instances, more than normal, because the games are coming thick and fast. There isn't a night that you don't sit in front of the TV without football on, for example. But the toll that that's ultimately taking on them. So what about the the, the mental health implications of, of this? You know, we're seeing, I think, even in the news today, the discussion around Liverpool exiting the Champions League last night, for example. There was a, as much discussion about the players just looking tired and you know done in from the year that they've had as there was about, you know, the, the changes that Liverpool might need to make to their team, for example. But that's the first time I've seen that referenced in the major media. It's just been in sort of low-level discussions, podcasts and things like that, where they seem to be paying much more attention to the players and their specific mental health needs at the moment. Yeah, I think firstly, it's positive that people are starting to talk about mental health. And I think there was a point in the past where people looked at, say, a Premier League footballer and go, well, how can you have a mental health problem? You're earning x thousand pounds a week you know your life's great but actually that's the point we all have mental health 
And we're all somewhere on a spectrum of that. And that can change over time, depending on the circumstances around us. It's a massive part of the challenges that we face around helping sports people in transition. Probably the number one thing that everyone talks about is that loss of identity. So if your identity is intrinsically linked to being a sports person, that's like stripping someone's identity away as soon as you take away the sport from them. So I think that's a massive part of it. And then, but we have to recognize, and that's why a really important part of this is we are all people first. There's a lot of language that's starting to circulate through high performance sport where they're talking about person and performer rather than just thinking of people as almost robotic sports people that just go out and do what they are supposed to do on the field of play and actually not recognizing that people all have feelings and actually some of the things you can do to support people in a positive way will actually also have a positive performance benefit as well because they'll feel energized refreshed you'll give them a different perspective there's lots of different things in there and evidence around some of those ways in which you can help create an environment where there is positive mental well-being so yeah it's, it's a huge issue in sport and unfortunately sadly you see examples and some relatively recently of players taking sports people taking their own life and that's incredibly sad and yeah guess part of what we try to do as a charity is very much to take a preventative role around that and do the things you can do to help support people put in place a plan to help them prepare for life outside of sports to try and take some of those concerns that might be there away from them and can we talk a bit more about that moment of transition because as you say it's such a pivotal one and I think we were discussing this a bit when we first spoke to you a few weeks ago where we were talking about how this kind of professional transition is something that so many people are going to have to go through multiple times particularly when we think about kids of today and when they enter the workforce and all those predictions about jobs uh, spinning up and then being automated within five years so is there any general advice that you'd give to anyone who's perhaps facing a career change right now or perhaps even someone who may be facing one 10 years from now where they're going to have to pivot quickly but also think about what their transferable skills are I guess the ideal part that we would always say to people is try and plan early. So a lot of what we see where the challenges come up, where people maybe have not done that preparation work, not thought about it soon enough, or as happens in a lot of cases, you are one injury away from the end of your career. So it can come up on you like that. We talk a lot about the change curve and it's um, an academic model that's taken around grief counselling and addiction counselling. And it talks about the stages of that change and it's any change in life. But when we talk through sports people through that, they suddenly start to recognise themselves in that story about the denial, the anxiety, what they describe as the valley of despair and that dip and ultimately the experimentation phase to try and come through it and ultimately finding fulfilment. So that's the way that we describe what we do is we try and help people to find whatever their fulfilment post-sport might look like. And that's a personal thing, but you've got to recognise there are stages that you will go through and we want to shallow that curve for people and to give them some of the tools and skills that will help them to make that. And some of that is about recognising that we do have transferable skills. So there's a lot of academic research that talks about sports people and they talk about what they described as new era employability skills. So the stuff around teamwork, the motivation that you see to get up and train at five o'clock in the morning every day of the year, those things are not necessarily ingrained everywhere across the general public. And I, I even still take to the point of remembering being sat in a purple tracksuit back in my days with 300 students all studying sport and they had a career session. And uh, I always remember the advice was they said, 30% of you will be an accountant because accountancy and other firms recognize the intrinsic skills that sports people have and they can train you to be an accountant. But those skills that you get through sport are hugely valuable. And it's just recognizing, and sometimes that's about translation, 
more than transferable in the sense of helping people to recognize that when a job description asks for a particular skill, they mean this. And by the way, that's what you did in sport for the last 20 years. I think we had that discussion just this week, Zoe, about leadership. You were listening to that podcast about Alex Ferguson's leadership style and things like that. And quite often you see the business world looking at the sporting world for those examples of, you know, how did how did you manage to keep this elite team at that level for a consistent period of time and what lessons we can learn from those worlds? Where do you see the the biggest gaps, though? Where's the the biggest transition that sports people need to make? Because some of the examples I think that I've looked at on on the website, for example, uh, are really nice examples of Beth Tweddle, for example, who was doing the gymnastics at the same time as starting to build for that career. And some sports people will be preparing in the background, but others will suddenly find themselves out of contract or at the end of a contract with literally nowhere to turn. And where, where do you see the biggest challenges? That's a really tough question. There's a personal bit of me that looks at young sports people that uh, have the dream and may not quite make it. And in any elite system, there is always a point where only the very few make it through that pathway. And actually, particularly when you talk about a young person, that's their childhood. At the Mm -hmm. most fundamental level, people are giving up their childhood to follow a sporting dream. And there is a duty of care that the system and sport has to ensure that those individuals have positive well-being, are supported, have positive experiences, and are given some tools that will help them to succeed in their life outside of sport. So there's something personal that's really important there about young people and where that duty of care really lies strongly with, with sport. I think all the evidence shows that transition is hardest where it's forced upon you, where it might be the career-ending injury or the contract not renewal, that piece or the being taken off funding from an Olympic or Paralympic perspective. That's the bit where it's the sudden jolt And even if you've laid some of the foundations, that's a really tough process to go through. I've heard sports people talk about the example of how often is it that you lose your hobby, your friendship network and your job all on the same day. That's what the end of your career can be like. And if that is a day that you do not see coming and you have not planned for, there is inevitably... There was a podcast I've seen recently talking about it. There's a grieving period that people have to go through. So I I do think that that's a real area of challenge that sport has and I'm really encouraged that there is some fantastic work that goes on across a number of the player associations to try and support athletes through this there is an inevitability that there's a sort of, I guess there's a group of people that are very proactive that will be on it on it and look to help themselves there's a group that will always be really difficult to engage no matter what you do and what you what support you provide and there's a this is a big group in the middle and the more that we can help that big group in the middle and really try and change the culture around sport that developing yourself as a person is something that is positive and can actually help performance and not just about thinking about plan b and life after sport because the inherent risk of that approach is that no one ever puts as much effort into plan b we put our effort into plan a don't we so until you actually change that mindset and recognize that actually doing some of this stuff now and the concept of better people makes better sports people then that's part of the challenge i think we've got to do like we're trying to change a culture here to really ensure that actually long-term change means that more people are coming out and having a positive transition experience rather than some of the negative examples that you see around mental health, financial pressures, relationship pressures, et cetera, et cetera. It's really interesting. I've got a a 16-year-old nephew who currently plays for Fulham and all the reports are that he's doing well and he's in the academy there. But he's getting to the point at 16 where that first contract is looming, I imagine. I certainly witnessed firsthand where uh, one of his friends literally one day when we were around there was was in the, the same group in the same uh, in the same team and was told you know, you're no longer required and it happens overnight 
And as you say, for young people who are building all of their dreams around this, this idea, it must be really, really tough. And also, I imagine that there's extra pressure on them from parents and expectations around them, particularly at that point. Somebody said to me last night where we were discussing this, that my son's football training, that he, he's a school teacher and he sees kids that transition into football teams. Watford is a, a local academy here that does really well. But there's pressure that's put on them within their peer network, within their family network. Oh, yeah, John, he's the, he's the kid that plays football for Watford or plays foot for, and then as soon as they're let go then that sort of crashes down around them so it's it's massively massively important glad you're there to be able to support it and, and I think it's a really good point because part of what we try to do is think about the support network around the individual mm. so there's a bit about the, the culture from a coaching perspective you're thinking about the agents and their role in terms of trying to encourage some of these messages the family and ultimately if you yourself haven't been through a high performance sport environment and you've got a child that's going through that, you don't know. You don't know what sort of questions to ask, how hard to push. Like when someone says this is the way it is, we almost, there's a danger that we normalise behaviours that shouldn't be the norm within a sporting environment. Really important that we help parents to understand how they can positively support their children in that environment. And yes, there are examples you hear where the risk is that they see, you know, they see their child as effectively their retirement plan. And that can be really difficult, ultimately, in terms of the pressure that you're putting on a young person. And having said that, I'm taking my son to a trial with another team tonight. And uh, I'd like to stay on the record that I'm not seeing you, Ethan, as my retirement plan yet. But, you know, let's see how you do tonight. So many people we've interviewed has told us that the pandemic has obviously really accelerated digital adoption uh, in their industries and changes as well. And we've talked a bit about that and how you've pivoted. So what has pivoting to digital enabled in your world that wasn't possible before? So it enables us to deliver, to engage people in a different way because we can take geography out of the equation and be able to deliver targeted programmes to individuals who need them as opposed to just working through sporting organisations where you'll have really diverse groups of people at all different stages. So if you think about delivering to a, an under 18 academy team, there is still quite a variety within that group. One of the new services that we delivered, first programme we delivered last year was six week online bootcamp programme targeting those that were coming up to the end of their career or recently retired. Now, that was something that if we were thinking about that pre-pandemic, we were thinking about the logistics of trying to get a venue and trying to bring people together, maybe around a weekend concept and things like that. And the cost that goes into trying to run a program like that, we can be much more nimble. And we subsidize that program fully as a charity. And it's not an insignificant cost, but that would be three times as hard to try and logistically deliver that and also subsidize that level of investment if you're trying to do that by putting people in a room face to face. So that's a really good example of how we've been able to pivot in a really positive way. One of the things that we're trying to get to, and I guess where this sort of digital adoption point comes, is trying to be able to provide support to sports people, the support they need when they need it. So if we're running a, a webinar around a particular career pathway, actually there's the number of people that can engage in that when we run it. But if we're able to create using digital to create online platforms that people can then go back in and engage in that content at a different point in time, because where they are in their lives is relevant to that content, that enables our content to have much more value across a longer period of time and to more people. So I think there's really exciting things that we can do there because ultimately that journey and where people are at 
actually just gives you much more flexibility about how we can engage people. We haven't got that nailed yet, and that's the bit in the plan, but it's helping us to look at things in a different way. And we've been having conversations with different platforms and looking, exploring about the different way that we might do that. And that's getting quite exciting about suddenly open your eyes to the types of platforms that exist and what you can then start to do and how you can really use it to help your beneficiaries. So where do you see the next challenges? I mean, we've, we've talked about what digital has enabled now. Where, where do you see the next challenges when it comes to, to digital for Switch to Play? I'll give you a challenge and an opportunity, if I may. So I think there's a challenge and something we want to look at around so speaking to sports people about looking back, what were the things that would help you through that transition? And one of the things that came out and has stuck with us and we're like, we need to start thinking about this, and this came out quite recently, was digital skills. So it's not something necessarily a lot of sports people have in terms of IT digital skills. So when they're starting to think about transitioning into a working environment, maybe going to professional services or whatever, their knowledge of that stuff is way behind maybe what their peers might be. So how we can maybe help to get those sort of core skills alongside all of the other stuff that sports people have to help them more be work ready for whatever that second career might look like. I think it's an interesting area. And then in terms of opportunity, we're really passionate about the role that sport can play to deliver a social impact. And sports people as role models can do a fantastic job. And you, you talked about Marcus Rashford as probably the most high profile and best example of that. Well, a lot of the way that Marcus Rashford has done that is he's used his voice through social media to engage a huge audience. And I think there's huge opportunity that going beyond what sports people do and maybe in terms of supporting local um community foundations for their clubs and, and organizations but how they can use their platform in a positive way so rather than seeing social media as a don't do this don't do that actually in terms of the brand that they have and the voice that they have is being able to really help influence positive change but in doing so that might be something that helps them to follow an area of passion open a perspective on something different in life that all helps them to develop new skills and helps to give them some support to help develop them for what they're opportunities are both on the field and off the field and we've done some work in this space where we've seen sports people saying well actually volunteering for this organization has actually made me a better sports person because it's made me more confident so I think there's there's huge opportunities in that space that creates the win-win in terms of helping the sports person to develop themselves but also be able to give back to society. When you were talking then at the end I was just thinking back to Last week, I think it or earlier this week, when Jordan Henderson, did you see what he did on, on social media? Did you see this, Joe, Zoe, that there's been a number of different sports people reacting to the, the, the social media online abuse? Um, Thierry Henry was the first person to say, well, I'm coming off the platforms until they... he's left Twitter, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. Until this gets sorted out. And a couple of clubs, I think Bristol City were one and a couple of others that said we're, we're coming off for a month, for a week. And, and I think it will take a, a big club to do something uh, along those lines. But um, if you go on to Jordan Henderson's Twitter feed at the moment, he basically sort of put a bunch of tweets out that said he was going to do it. But he's handed his entire feed and therefore his millions of connections over to Cybersmile at CybersmileHQ. And they are... Uh, an online, uh, an anti-online abuse charity, and they are now using his feed and using his platform to speak to a whole new audience of people that you know. And I just think that's a fantastic idea in one way that many, many sports people could, particularly footballers who are in this maelstrom of abuse and awful, awful racism at the moment, a way of of using their platform for absolute good. Yeah, we we saw that last week. It's it's brilliant, and I guess that sort of shows how you can turn it to the positive isn't it you know following 
supporting a social cause in that instance around the topic around cyberbullying um, affects so many people. And sports people have certainly certainly been at the forefront of that, haven't they? Well, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much. That was fascinating. I speak as someone who, uh, as you know, Paul, is a real novice about sport, but this has just been completely fascinating and really eye-opening. So thank you so much, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you to Rob. I love all of our interviews, but given my interest in sport, I found this one fascinating. I think the big takeaways for me were when Rob talked about the transition out of sport uh, often being forced in some instances, so career-ending injuries and, and things like that, you know, leaving you completely unprepared for, for life after sport and the mental effect that that can have on athletes. And also I thought the, the points about duty of care to, to kids, I think I might have mentioned before, but my nephew is, well, he's coming up to, to 17 and he plays for Fulham. Uh, and so he's dedicated the last few years of his life to developing his football and sporting career as well. And I think the idea that children who who dedicate their, their childhoods to sport and then are rejected at the last because they're not going to make it, I think is 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 also a, a massive, there's a massive impact there on mental health and, and well-being. So vital charity doing some vital work. Yes, I thought it was absolutely fascinating and made me think about all the transferable skills that athletes have and also that anyone will have when uh, changing career. So it was a really enlightening conversation for me from that perspective. Definitely. The skills that they could take into the workplace and how uh, lots of sports people end up in professional services, which I thought was interesting as well. We normally do a spot here on books and music. Zoe, you've made a recommendation to me about a book you've just read, and uh, we're going to try our best to get the authors on the podcast. Yes, we are indeed. And we'll be able to say a bit more about that once we know more. I'm getting towards the end of Clara and the Sun, by the way. So perhaps we can talk about that one next week. Yes, we can. Sounds good. So thank you for listening to episode five of season three. We'll be back next week with another episode. As usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel that you will do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at at starts at the top one and you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. And if you wouldn't mind and you're listening to this on Apple iTunes or anywhere else that you can leave a review, please do. Uh, It really, really does help us. Thank you and we'll speak to you again next week. Thank you. See you next week.